Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But first, we start with the epidemic of graffiti, vandalism, property damage in Vancouver, especially in Chinatown. The beautiful mural that was destroyed by graffiti. Unbelievable. Have you seen this that mural? It was at the 10 Run Tea and Ginseng Company on Pender Street. Absolutely beautiful, painted by a local artist, part of a Vancouver mural festival. Of course, it gets covered in graffiti. I got Bradley Spence standing by. He owns a small business on that street, and he caught the guy that he's certain was the tagger, caught him in the act. Hey, Bradley, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me again. Uh, okay, Bradley, let's first, let's listen to part of your video here of you confronting the guy you believe you're certain is the tagger here. You will hear uh, Global News reporter Romina Day here, and then I'll get your thoughts. Okay. You're a scumbag. Why? We, I just want to know why. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? Huh? Well, just give me an answer. What are the chances businessman Bradley Spence would get a chance to confront the man he believes destroyed a treasured work of art in his neighborhood? So my coworker actually spotted him on the camera and he runs out as I'm talking to a customer. He's like, that's the guy, that's the guy. Spence confident the guy he challenged Tuesday was captured on his surveillance camera early Sunday morning when a new Chinatown mural was destroyed. The unique street art celebrating community in this historic neighborhood only lasted a few weeks before it was defaced. Why? Why would you hurt someone's business like that? It's a small business. They hire people in the community. You're hurting people. Think about that next time you deface people's property, man. Okay, Bradley Spence there confronting the guy he's certain was defaced that mural. Bradley is the owner of EV's personal electric vehicle store on Pender. Bradley, how do you know that this was the right guy? I mean, we had him um, on camera. We had this green hair, his dog. He had this uh, very unique patch on the back of his camouflage jacket. And um, I was 100% positive it was him. We saw him actually on the camera again. And in, we had a camera in the back of our store. And we, when one of my employees noticed him walking by, he's like, that's the guy. So I went running outside. And I followed close behind while I dialed 911. And the 911 operator, who was completely in the wrong, I was told by the police, um, said to stop following him and to um, call the non-emergency line. And because they didn't believe me that I knew, knew for sure it was the correct suspect. But Do it was... You- yeah, you had no he- you had no hesitation going up and getting in this guy's face and and challenging him. Like, what did he say to you? Well, yeah, I was quite annoyed after they didn't the police didn't do anything, so they weren't going to get dispatched. So I'm like, well, I'm not letting this guy just get away with it. So I thought I'd give him a piece of my mind. And yeah. uh, he told me he doesn't live here. He's leaving town soon, and um, just pretty much repeated what I said. He's like, yeah, I did it because I'm a scumbag. I, I'm a loser. And it just it's just painful to see. But I mean, I went into him even harder when I wasn't recording on camera, to be honest. And 
I just wanted to at least give him a little piece of my mind, essentially, because no one else seems to be doing anything about it. So, Yeah, you had that exchange you just referenced is also caught on your video. Let's listen to a little bit of that video and that exchange here. So here it is. I hope you think about this and think badly of what you've been doing to our city, to our neighborhood. Yeah. I want to know why. I'm a low-life scum, I guess. You definitely are a low-life scum. Yeah, he said, I guess I'm a lo- I guess I'm a low life scum and you and you agreed with him. Um, can you describe like what what is this what does that graffiti look like? What what was there before? Describe the mural and then what happened to the mural. Yeah, it was this be- beautiful mural that was supporting the culture in, in Chinatown and they yeah. they spent a lot of time painting it. We we watched it go up and within weeks it's, it gets destroyed again. And I thought there's supposed to be some graffiti code out there that you don't put your graffiti over someone else's art. And uh, yeah. this guy didn't seem to care. So it's and just, it's, yeah. And it's on. not. It's not the first time it was covered in graffiti, right? No, it, it's <laughs> that poor tea shop has been removing graffiti for years, and it, it's gotten a lot worse. Apparently, during the pandemic, we've only been open during the pandemic uh, since the middle of it. So we've we've seen it all. I mean, I've spent thirty thousand dollars in damages for repairing our glass multiple times, our graffiti in our own store reinforcing security bars that people keep prying off. So it's been a, it's been a, a, we've only been in business for 14 months and have already spent over $30,000. $30,000, just what? Repairing damage. Repairing damage. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly glass bills that we don't want to go to insurance because our rates go get way too expensive. We do. Speaking of Bradley Spence, he's the co-founder of EVs. It's a personal electric vehicle store. They sell electric scooters there on Pender Street. Very popular store, Bradley. I'm not sure that people trying to break in. I mean, they see a store, they go, oh, there's electric bikes and scooters in there. How many times have you been a victim of attempted break-ins there? Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the times someone, our windows got smashed, uh, the person just did it for fun. And uh, we know because we over, one of my staff members overheard him talking on the street. Oh, I just smashed this window for for, for the hell of it the other day. <laughs> so people are just vandalizing to vandalize. But we did have one attempted break in where they tried to steal things. Um, but now we lock up all of our products. So when you walk by at night, you can't see anything in the store. So um, it's we haven't had any more attempted break in since we've done we've done that. But we also just invested um, fifteen thousand dollars into security shutters. So once, oh. those are, once those are installed, uh, we should be a little bit ability, be able to sleep better at night. <laughs> those are the now those security shutters. Those are the roll down steel steel windows you can roll down at night, right? Yeah, and yeah. those are going to get tagged left, right, and center, and that's what got tagged at the Tenren Tea Store as well. They had they they had the mural painted on their shutters. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, they're kind of ugly looking things, but it's just a fact of life, right? I mean, you have to do it. Yeah, it's unfortunate because we, we want to be a welcoming store for people. And when you put security shutters up, it just looks like you're, you know, I don't know, it's less welcoming. So it, it's unfortunate that we had to take that step. But we've been vandalized and our windows have been smashed three times now. And uh, it's just getting out of control. Did you have any hesitation? So when you saw this guy, you were certain you had the guy who's, who graf- did the graffiti on the on the tea shop down the street from you. Did you have any hesitation or think twice about going up and confronting this guy? Because, you know, you never know what's going to happen these days. I mean, there's lots of random violence on the streets, too. Yeah, I mean, I have my black belt. I've never had to use it, but I know how to defend myself if the guy has a knife or something. 
Um, and I was prepared to defend myself if, if that happened. So I don't suggest other people do what I did just in case. But yeah. uh, he, he was nonviolent. And uh, it, yeah, <laughs> I, I decided I had zero hesitation. My, I kind of just my instincts came in and I just was so upset that they weren't going to dispatch the police. Because I thought I, I caught the guy. I told the police I finally on the phone. I was like, I, I have him in my sights. Like, I'm not going to I'm going to keep falling behind. I'm not going to confront him until the police come. And the lady was actually quite snarky, and the police told me they're going to follow up with that dispatcher because she was very much in the wrong. Why? What did she say to you? Well, she to- the snarkiness came from, like, um, you can't possibly know that's him. And I said, yes, I do. Oh. We have him on- clear on camera. He's got green hair, dog, a unique patch on his uh, jacket. And, he- <laughs> and later he admitted it was him anyway. Um, yeah. And anyway, so we've had that t- same thing happen where people have tried to use stolen credit cards to purchase things in our store. Yeah. And the the police uh, won't come to the store unless you say your safety is threatened. So I, I should have probably said, oh, I'm going to confront him anyway, and I don't know if he's going to be violent. And then maybe the police would have been dispatched. But okay. to be a lot more picky. <laughs> Bradley, good for you for standing up for your neighborhood. I appreciate you coming on to share the story today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about BC's billion-dollar museum project now to replace the Royal BC Museum in Victoria. There's been a big public backlash against uh, this project here, but the government not backing down on this. In fact, the government doubling down, insisting they will go ahead with this project. This would be the most expensive museum project in Canadian history. Check this out now. We had some First Nations in British Columbia saying, wait a sec, let's put the brakes on this. Let's do a rethink of this. Is this really the best use of a billion bucks right now? Is there a better way to go? Now, don't forget that the government said this new museum is will focus on First Nations largely. It will uh, showcase Indigenous history and culture. Have a listen to Melanie Mark here, the, uh, the minister responsible. We are taking action to ensure that the stories of all British Columbians who shaped this province are added to the collections and exhibition halls of the new Royal BC Museum. We are taking the diverse stories of British Columbians and Indigenous people out of the shadows and into the light. Okay, but were First Nations consulted on this project? Do they support it? Let's discuss now with my guest, Ken Watts. Ken is the elected chief counselor for the Sashat First Nation on Vancouver Island. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Chief Watts, thank you very much for coming on today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Were, were you, uh, was your First Nation consulted on this project? Or I wonder if any First Nations were in on, in on this one. Yeah, I, I can't speak on behalf of other First Nations, but yeah. for myself, I've been the elected chief since uh, December of 2021. And uh, yeah, we are uh, sorry, 2020, and we haven't uh, been engaged since. So uh, yeah, no, uh, did, no consultation with our nation in the past year and year and a bit here. When did you first hear about it? Uh, probably the same time everybody else did uh, yeah. through the media. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. What do you think when when you hear the minister responsible there, Culture Minister Melanie Mark? She talks about you know bringing indigenous history and culture out of the shadows and into the light in in this new museum what do you think of that idea uh so like I, i've shared before you know some nations want to keep their artifacts uh, at the royal bc museum others don't and I, I just think this is an opportunity uh to support first nations on repatriation for such a large 
uh, announcement, there was a, a real opportunity to do this hand in hand with First Nations. Say, you know what, we're building a new museum, but we're, we're also reinvesting in repatriation of artifacts back to nations that want them, uh, but also the support to house them. And I, uh, I always find it funny when, you know, there's there's discussion about other funding for repatriation and grants we could apply for. Uh, we shouldn't have to apply for grants to repatriate things that are ours. <laughs> and yes. uh, so I, I just see this as an opportunity to have a discussion at least. Um, between the province and our, and our First Nation. What other First Nations do is really up to them. I, I'm not going to tell other yeah. nations what to do. So this is really just about a shot. But you believe that the artifacts and sacred and historical objects that are that are currently in the possession of the museum, you believe they should all be returned to the to First Nations? Yeah, for if, for nations that are interested, for, for yeah. us, definitely. And uh, again, we, we shouldn't have to fund any of that. Uh, they were our items. Uh, they need to return back home uh, when we're ready. But also, we need support to store them and actually house them as well. And I, I won't use necessarily the word museum, but to create our own facilities. Maybe it's a Sishot Cultural Centre, but maybe we're working with other First Nations, such as the New Channels, the rest of the 14 nations of the Tribal Council, and and creating a larger facility, but at least let's have the discussion first. And uh, I understand there was some emergency to, you know, to help construct this new building, but uh, let, let's actually have a conversation between the nation and the province and the museum. Speaking to Ken Watts, he's the elected chief counselor of this Hashat First Nation. So, uh, Chief, you believe the government should what? Put the brakes on this project, right? Well, I think they, uh, I think they need to find ways to reinvest and support opportunities for First Nations to repatriate. If they're going to build the building, they're going to build it. But at the same time, those conversations need to be had right now and also the funding to bring those artifacts home and house them. Uh, it's not just our First Nation. I'm sure there's others that are interested too. Uh, but let, again, let's at least have the conversation. So yeah, I, I think uh, you know they'll decide what they want to do with the museum, uh, all the power to them if, that, if that's what they want to do. But for such a large funding announcement, I'd hope that at least in parallel, they'd have a similar announcement about uh, letting nations return return their artifacts home and decentralizing the museum and actually reinvesting in local communities or regions that support uh, you know, economic reconciliation and tourism. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think they're I, I think they mean well. I think you know some of the recent actions around DRIPA and UNDRIP and um, you know, First Nations giving revenue sharing and other matters shows there, there's a willingness to have those conversations and work together. Uh, right. I just think it's this is just the call out to say, hey, let's let's have a conversation. Let's see what we need to do to make this a reality. Because again, those items are sacred and they fall in line with their drip action plan as well. So, what kind of what kind of items do they have in in the museum's possession here? Yeah, so we have everything from baskets to knives to harpoon heads to a lot of cedar bark weaving, uh, some masks, rattles spears, a lot of harpoon points as well, and uh, boxes and nets, a lot of different things for our First Nation. Uh, again, we're one of the 14 nations that make up the New Channels Tribal Council, and I think it's 15% of all the artifacts in the Indigenous collection are from New Channels. Wow. So, uh, you know, we're one of the 14 nations that make that up. So, um, you know, the, again, there's 204 First Nations in BC, and I just think this is an opportunity to have conversations now. It seems like the opportune time to... Yeah. Uh, work with them on what it is they'd like to do and provide them the support to house those items too. So, What do you think of the price tag of this thing? I mean, this is the thing that's been like the sticker shock of a billion dollars for the total the total project. The first phase of it is already over budget. I mean, you know, I mean, as the chief of a First Nation on, on the island, like, can you think of uh, better things to do with a billion bucks right now? 
Well, I, I get it, right? The museum is deteriorating. They need to do work on it. They need to renovate it. I, I think the size and scale, maybe some people have some arguments about that. Uh, but again, from, from just our First Nations perspective, maybe the budget could have been reduced a little in the size and scope of such a new building. Uh, and instead, turning around some of that funds to First Nations to house their own items in, in smaller facilities at a local or regional level, right? Yeah. So I, I'm not going to sit here and criticize the cost as much as uh, the opportunity and actually calling upon the, the province to step up and work with us on this opportunity to fund uh, our First Nation. But, I, I, you know, construction costs are going up. I get it. Um, but, it's again, it's about, uh, this is about supporting local communities and not just First Nations, but I think even local, you know, municipalities and regional districts and others would be excited to see, you know, those items returned home and uh, facilities being open at the local level, right? So I, I think uh, that's that's all we're really calling is a you know upon the province to step up and have a conversation with us, and we'll yeah. see where it goes from there. But I, I'll close on this: yeah. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't speak up on behalf of our community and all those ancestors that carved those items or weaved those items. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't speak up and say, "Hey, hold on a sec. We, we need those resources and support to build our own communities and bring our artifacts home because they are sacred. They have a spirit and." They mean a lot to us, so I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't get up and say something. Yeah, and, and you are not. Yeah, I, I certainly respect that a great deal. And uh, you are not the first Indigenous leader to speak up in this fashion. I, I spoke early, on an earlier show to Chris Sankey, who is an Indigenous business leader in British Columbia. He's a former elected councillor with the Laxqualam First Nation near Prince Rupert. And here's what he had to say to me about this issue uh, last week. Get your thoughts. This money should have been focused on somewhere a, a different priority, like housing, like healthcare, like fresh water uh, for our communities. There's just so much more that needs to go in. We, we talk about wanting to have cleaner feel. Like there's just so many more applications and files that this money should have been geared towards, and not not a museum. Look at this, Chris Sankey speaking to me on last week's show. Speaking to Ken Watts, the elected chief counselor of the Sashot First Nation on Vancouver Island. Ken, we, we spoke, we, we touched briefly on the, the budget issue um, and whether there could be better uses of, of this kind of money f- when we're talking about, you know, some of the difficult situations that First Nations face in, in BC. But for you, it, it's mostly, it's more about the these sacred objects that the museum has in their possession right now, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I totally agree about the investments in the province, right? We, we mm. are, make no mistake about it, we have a mental health crisis happening right now. It's not just an opioid crisis and a homelessness crisis. It's all of that. They're all interconnected, and they all need to continue to have serious investments. And I, I acknowledge some of the support that's happened in new housing projects that happen. Should there be more? Definitely. Is is there ever enough? Probably not resources to actually address all the issues. We're, we're kind of putting Band-Aids on the issues, right? But we're doing... It's not just the province, but the federal government and others. We're, we're stepping up to do what we can, but uh, make no mistake about it, we're in a crisis. I, I think for this yeah. particular situation, it's just about a reinvestment. If there's going to be a reinvestment in artifacts in a museum, uh, reinvest in local communities at the same time. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can scale the size and scope of a larger state-of-the-art facility and instead actually support communities in local at a local level as well, or even tribal groups. Again, like I said, maybe... Maybe it's multiple nations. It doesn't make sense maybe for one to house, but maybe it makes sense for 14 to house their artifacts and not necessarily a museum, but maybe some type of facility, right? So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. There's, there needs to be more investments in all right. those areas that were listed, but um, for this opportunity, let's, let's find ways to work together. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's talk about the hundreds of thousands of Canadians right now who are desperately trying to get a passport in this country, and it is a waiting game to be sure. Some people absolutely desperate. We have seen people lining up outside of passport offices in Surrey and elsewhere, some of them sleeping overnight, desperate to get a passport in time for their travel plans. This is costing a lot of people time, aggravation, money, lots of reports from people who have had to cancel their travel plans because they were not able to get a passport in time. We talked about this on the show last week. I spoke to Globe and Mail columnist Gary Mason. Here's what he had to say about it. This was widely anticipated. The one organization that didn't seem to anticipate this was the people that run uh, our passport system, which is absolutely absurd. There's just no excuse for people having to line up days in advance, get a bloody passport. It's ridiculous. Okay, I agree. It is ridiculous. Let's talk to Anne-Marie Gibson now. Anne-Marie is a a mom in Nanaimo, has been trying to get her daughter a passport. Hi, Anne-Marie. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, Anne-Marie, I appreciate you doing this. Let's go back to when you first applied to get your daughter's passport because she was tra- she was planning to travel to the United States for a sports tournament, right? That's right. I applied yeah. mid-January. Okay. Mid-January. And when and waited and waited till mid-April and started yeah. getting antsy, hadn't heard anything, hadn't heard anything. Um, finally got a call back late April that the passport had been rejected. Rejected. Okay. Why, why was it rejected? Uh, the divorce order 11 years ago was missing a paragraph that had nothing to do with the child was the original divorce order that was used to obtain her previous passport and they needed a statement from me saying it was the original order. And I said, yes, it was the original order. They spoke with her father. They spoke with the guarantor. And I faxed off a statement. And late May, uh, still hadn't heard anything. And they rejected it again. Oh, no. So they rejected it twice. Like, it's not like a technicality, like a missing paragraph on a on an 11-year-old divorce paper. Like, yes. Oh, man. Okay. So this, why did they reject it a second time? Uh, they wanted a new order. A new order. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I can't. Do you know who heard it is to get a judge? It's like getting a doctor. Yeah, right. <laughs> you just oh. can't get a judge. You just can't get a new order. So they insisted that I either get a new order or I have the court register um, basically swear an affidavit that it was the original order and that it was just missing a paragraph, a uh, clerical error, a, a photocopy error. I don't know why didn't clearly didn't read it. And um, that was a Friday afternoon and uh, rushed to the courthouse. To, oh. to the court register to get my order because I had sent them my copy of the order and then had to hopefully track down my lawyer from 11 years ago. Oh. Anyway, luckily enough, he was available and he wrote a statement that it was the original order. Yes, it was missing a paragraph, which was one sentence, 
which was to do with assets, had nothing to do with the child. He faxed it off. Uh, two days later, I got a voicemail saying it was approved. Oh, my goodness. So how long did this all take you? Months and months and months. Is dragging Over on. five months. Five, Over five, five months. Five months. Did you try explaining to them, like, look, my daughter has, is going to a lacrosse tournament. Like, yes. <laughs> can you help us, yes. please? Yeah. yeah, there was no, there was no help. You can't, you can't call them. You, you hope to get through. You can't get through. You try to leave a message. Nobody calls you back. You wait, you wait, you wait. You get a fax number. You start faxing, but nobody calls you back. It's very frustrating not to have an email address or not to have a contact person or an extension number or any way to contact these people. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking to Anne-Marie Gibson, she's a Nanaimo mom and her nightmare trying to get a a passport for your, for her daughter. Like what was going through your mind when you were waiting and waiting and then getting all these cancellations and rejections? I mean, did you ever, did you ever think like, you know, how could it be this difficult just to renew it, get a passport? Well, exactly. She's she's had two previous passports as an infant yeah. and then as a child. We've all had passports. I, I mean, I'm fairly organized. I thought January, we'd be good for June. No problem. Again, why and how it's taking this long, I don't know. Like, I just, I really don't know. It, uh, incredibly stressful as the months counted down to June. Uh, now she leaves on Wednesday. It just got more and more stressful. The the money kept amounting, um, flights, hotels, car rentals, and there was no passport. <laughs> yeah, so this went, about it. this went right down to the wire for you and your daughter. So she was able, did you finally get the passport in your hand? Yes. I okay. Got it. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, yeah. so it, it has a happy ending here. But, you know, for for other people, there's been lots of other people who have had to cancel their travel plans because they haven't been able to get a passport. Like, have you heard from others that have been in similar situations here trying to deal with this this backlog yes. system? Yes. Uh, apparently, they're rejecting the short birth certificate. I have clients who have young children that say they're trying to get their young children's passport renewed, and they're not accepting the short version of the birth certificate. They want the long version, which includes mom's name and dad's full name. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that for a fact, but um, yes, there's many other people in my situation, and uh, five months was just, it was a long time. It was very stressful, very stressful. It was hard on her, hard on me, the team, the coaches, the chaperones, the, the travel agent. You know, like it, there was a lot involved. And, uh, I'm yeah. Glad it's over. yeah, no, that's an extremely stressful situation for sure. What do you think about when, you know, the government, of course, is frequently asked about this and they say, well, you know, we've got staff shortages and backlogs and there, there's been a surge in demand to travel again and lots of people are looking for passports. So we just were sort of caught unawares. Do you think they should have, they should have anticipated a surge of people looking for a passport because obviously there's pent up demand for people to to travel again. Well, absolutely, and and it, when it's a renewal, it really shouldn't, in my opinion, shouldn't be that difficult. Yeah. If, if this is a 13 year old child born and raised here in Nanaimo, and and again, those types of situations shouldn't be that difficult. We shouldn't be writing new policies and new procedures 
in the middle of a staffing shortage or, or whatever they have going on at the moment. Um, let's get those renewals out. Um, yeah. I, I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the dilemma is. I really don't. I, I don't see why it should take this long, though. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's inexcusable. And Marie, I'm glad the story had a happy ending for you and your daughter. I hope she does well at the lacrosse tournament. And thanks for coming on to share the story today. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Mike. Let's talk tipping now. Everyone knows you're expected to tip in a restaurant, right? Most people also tip their barber, their hairdresser, your bartender. You tip your taxi driver, of course. What about some of these other places where tipping did not exist before? Have you noticed that fast food restaurants now often have a a tip option as well? You pay for your takeout burger and fries uh, you can put a tip on the bill as well. Has tipping gone up during the pandemic? There is some evidence that it has. Taking a look at one study here, it says the average tip size at a restaurant, bar, or barbershop, or hair salon pre-pandemic uh, was 16.8%. That has now gone up to 18.2% average tip during this one study. Check this out now, though. In Ottawa, a fine dining restaurant there has now gone tip-free. The restaurant's called Ayana, and the owner has said he has phased out tipping. He pays his staff now a living wage. He has 24 staff, so he's given them a raise. No more tips. He does charge his customers a service fee on the bill. Instead of a tip, he says tipping is a sneaky way of guilt tripping a customer into subsidizing your workers' wages. You think more restaurants will do that? Should we phase out tipping in some places? Let's discuss now with my guest, Mark Menser from the University of Saskatchewan. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Mark, thanks a lot for coming on today. Good morning. Do you think tipping has gone up during the pandemic? Is that is that your read of it? Oh, definitely. And I think we, we all see this everywhere. Not only is the percentage going up, but as you mentioned in your preface, the occasions when a tip seems to be expected, it's becoming more frequent. And wow, the chip card readers, that yeah. has had a big effect. They're everywhere. Yeah, how does that work now? That's This is the one that it gives you, a, it suggests the tip size for you when you put your card in, right? Right. Uh, you yeah. mentioned fast food. Just yesterday, I went to one of these places where you buy pizza by the slice, you walk up to the counter and pay by credit card. It gives me my tip options. I chose to tip zero, mm. but you know, there is that awkwardness and the employees looking at you as you press the button. These <laughs> situations are occurring everywhere. Yeah, no, they really are. There are definitely more tip uh, tip opportunities here. Does is Canada and the United States are we different from other countries on this? Like I was reading that, you know, in the in the UK or other parts of Europe that they don't tip there. Is that true? Uh, I would say it depends on the country. The U.S. and Canada are certainly outliers. Um, for people who have visited Britain. Um, most places have a service charge. Restaurants have a service charge. Uh, often that service charge goes directly into the manager's pocket. Oh. You know, you might 
think that service charge goes to the server. Some places it does, some places it doesn't. Uh, on the continent of Europe, tipping, tipping is done, but it's, the percentages are not as high and it's not as rigid as it is in North America. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that too. Let me ask you about this Ottawa restaurant now that has decided to phase out tipping and paying their workers a living wage instead. There is a service fee on the bill, but no more tipping in that restaurant. What do you think of that? It's an interesting experiment. There have been a number of restaurants that have gone to no tipping policies. They're almost without exception, very high-end restaurants. Yeah. Uh, there was a situation back in 2016 where Earl's in downtown Calgary experimented with a no-tipping policy and reverted it, went back to a tipping policy. The customers didn't like it. The servers didn't like it. So uh, I don't think we're going to be seeing no-tipping policies at restaurants at that level, but at the uh, hyper-luxury level, this seems to be the only level where there's even a possibility that no tipping policies will be successful. Do you think that workers in restaurants who rely on tips as part of their income, do you think they would typically be unhappy to see their establishment phase out tipping? But on the other hand, like, what if their boss said to them, well, look, I'm going to increase your salary, I'm going to give you better benefits, like maybe health care, but no more tipping. How do you think most workers would react to that? Well, I think, uh, particularly in this era, when restaurant servers can hop jobs very easily, every restaurant server does their little internal calculation. Now, if it's accompanied by better benefits, that's interesting, this means the restaurant owner has to raise the menu prices, perhaps to the point of scaring away customers. The overall pattern, though, is that in most restaurants, servers want tipping yes. because the server feels that they're somewhat in control of their own income, even though that, that might be uh, a bit illusory. Speaking of Mark Menser, University of Saskatchewan, we're talking about tipping in Canada seems to be going up and expanding as well. Do you think that most people, like, behavior, attitudes toward tipping have changed in any way? Like, I know people will tell me that I will tip at, at a restaurant based on the quality of service that I have received. If I have not, re- if I have received subpar service, I will not I will leave a, a lower tip or maybe no tip at all. Is that how most people approach it? Or do you think more for most people it's just automatic? I'm going to tip 15%, 20%, maybe even more. I think most people have a percentage in their mind, and that is the tip that they leave unless the service is really a disaster. When somebody normally tips, let's say they normally tip 15%, and because they're disappointed with the service, they decide to tip 10%, I'm not sure the server even picks up on the message there. The server probably thinks, oh, this is just a cheap customer. Yeah, and when you mention that there are some other outlets now, when you go in, surprise, surprise, there's a tip option on the on the keypad when you're paying your bill. You mentioned that occurred to you the other day, and you tipped... Uh, you said you tipped zero when you were, you were picking up, was mm-hmm. it some, t- some takeout food? Uh, a single slice of pizza. That's it, right, a single slice of pizza. Why did you feel there should be uh, 
no tip there? Uh, a tip, in, to my mind, in a restaurant situation yeah. is when the server comes to my table, takes my order, brings the food to my table. Uh, traditionally, we have not tipped in our culture in fast food situations where you stand at the counter and get your food at the counter. Uh, I imagine there's some people who, when faced with the tip option, do choose to tip. Yeah. I don't know what that percentage is, but I think there's probably a lot of people like me that say fast food, uh, no, not, not leaving a tip. Uh, yeah, no, that is a new one for a lot of people, for sure. What about the way they uh, divvy up tips in a restaurant, typically? Like, I've been told that most places now, they will pool all the tips, and the people who are working in the, the back of the restaurant, like the dishwashers or the people who are bussing tables, they'll get a share of those tips. Is that how typically most restaurants do it now? Uh, yes, it depends on the province. That's considered illegal in some provinces, such as Quebec wow. and Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh. But uh, the Western provinces regulate tipping less than the Eastern provinces, generally speaking. So when you leave a tip for your server, some percentage of that, and it varies from restaurant to restaurant, the server is required to share with the kitchen staff. Once again, you think you're leaving a tip to reward the server for, let's say, their excellent service. Um, the server doesn't get to keep all of that. Last question for you, Mark. Do you think that with the tipping, the no tipping restaurant that we saw in Ottawa, and we have seen other restaurants go this route as well, and in some cases it's been a failed experiment, like some of the staff maybe didn't like it, or they go back to a tipping model, and sometimes the customers don't like it too, right? Is that like? Did you say mm -hmm. that in some cases the customers are like, what do you mean there's no tip? I want to leave a tip? Yeah, tipping gives the customer power over the tipper, uh, power over the server. I think to some extent that's, that's an illusion. Um, there certainly are instances where customers have gotten away with sexual harassment and the server puts up with it because the server wants a tip. Uh, generally speaking, customers prefer a tip to a service charge because the customer feels they have some measure of control, even, even if it's just an illusion. Okay, well, we'll see how this uh, experiment goes at this Ottawa restaurant, and we'll follow it closely. Mark, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. You're welcome. Let's talk about Canada's men's national soccer team now. Lots of excitement around this team. They've been playing great. They have qualified now for the 2022 World Cup. First time Canada has qualified in 36 years. Man, everyone's so super excited about this team right now. But Oh my goodness, look what's going on here now. The men's national soccer team are in a paid dispute with Canada Soccer, the organizing body of a soccer in soccer in our country. Uh, yesterday's game uh, scheduled at BC Place was canceled as a result. Let's check in with Rob Williams, national sports editor at the Daily Hive. Hey, Rob, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm, I'm kind of shocked at this. This came, seemed to come out of the blue for most people. Rob, what's going on here? Yeah, uh, how, how much time have you got? Uh, <laughs> this is, um, it's a debacle. Uh, you know, the Canadian soccer players uh, refused to uh, practice on uh, Friday and Saturday. So there was something brewing, or, or sorry, uh, Thursday and Friday, and then, or sorry, 
Friday, Saturday, and then something was brewing clearly and then refused to play on Sunday. And, and essentially, um, you know, it's, it's, it's over money, but it's, it's, it's more than that. It's not, it, this is, you know, if you look at the statement the players uh, gave, this is like an issue of communication, an issue of being disrespected, uh, an issue of, you know, not even being able to get a meeting with the, the, you know, the, the Canadian soccer president, Nick Fontes, who gave a press conference yesterday that was, uh, I don't think he impressed too many people um, in that press conference. He was defensive. Uh, he seemed rattled. Um, you know, it didn't seem like a lot of leadership uh, on, on Canada soccer. Okay, it was certainly disappointing for the fans, Rob. Let's have a little uh, listen here to some of the reaction of fans here to the situation, especially the cancellation of the game yesterday at BC Place. Let's have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. I just bought tickets 10 minutes ago. Oh, I think it's a joke. We got up early this morning and drove to Nanaimo from Port Alberni, took the ferry over here. It's the second embarrassment for Canada's World Cup qualifying team. This game was meant to be a make good for the sold out match against Iran that got cancelled because of politics. And you can only imagine what this does to build excitement for the World Cup. Okay, so the friendly match with Panama called off yesterday at BC Place Stadium. Yeah, that's got to be disappointing for the fans, Rob. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah. Just, uh, you know, they must be gutted. I mean, the yeah. the the news only broke, uh, you know, only about an hour, I think, before the gates were supposed to open. So, you know, if you came from, I'm sure a lot of uh, people came from, from far and wide to, to come to the match and make a, and make a day or a weekend out of it. And, uh, you know, to just have the, have the match be canceled, uh, particularly after Vancouver wasn't chosen for any of the world cup qualifying events, despite Vancouver having the best stadium in the, in the country for such an event. Um, you know, there was a, you know, this was a long time coming for Vancouver to get, to get this match and for it to be rescheduled and then canceled again. Uh, yeah, it's, it's brutal. It's a, it's a bad look on, on, uh, on Canada soccer, frankly, uh, you know, Canada soccer for two decades seemingly couldn't do anything right. And, uh, finally they've got this team that the whole country's excited about and they, and then this happens. Like, I just don't understand how leadership could, could let it come to this to, for, you know, for the golden boys, like, you know, Alfonso Davies to be keeping yeah. players like that waiting um, and having them confused and feeling disrespected, um, it's just, for, for it to get to the, this point, um, it's just completely inexcusable. Yeah, no, this is, this is Bush League stuff here for sure. I mean, all those fans, like you said, there must have been thousands have traveled for that game and then last minute told there's no game. Wow, like, I'm not sure how that is going to sit with the public. Like, presumably the players want the fans on their side. Right, like they want the public to support them in this dispute, but I don't know. This is like, isn't it kind of punishing the fan base to do this? Yeah, believe it or not, from the reaction I've seen, most of the support is behind the players and not behind okay. Canada Soccer, and I think that's uh, that's a testament to to how poorly Canada Soccer has been run for, like I say, for at least two decades. Um, I think that there's a recognition that, you know, these players flew from around the world, like many of them playing in Europe, they flew around from around the world to be here. Um, they're not going to, they're not going to sit out um, training and, and matches, uh, you know, which are in preparation for the world cup, which they've worked so hard to, to, 
to, to qualify for, they're not going to make this decision lightly. So I don't think this, I don't think people should be viewing this as like greedy soccer players looking for more money. Like this is about a lot of things. This is about having, uh, you know, listing Canada soccer to a, to a higher standard uh, than has been in the past and, and wanting answers. And I think that's for me that like the, the talk about being disrespected and, and not being able to get meetings uh, with with the president of Canada Soccer uh, until 24 hours before the match, uh, and you know it, just that type of stuff. Just I think people are are really siding with the players on this one for the most part. Right. Okay. Speaking to Rob Williams, sports editor at the Daily Hive, Canada's men's soccer team, effectively on strike here. Um, how much do they get paid to play in the world in the World Cup? Do we know? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know if all those details are, are fully public, but, yeah. um, yeah, like there was just, it, it was just even things like, I guess it, it all depends on, on, I think Canada soccer is trying to say that, well, you're comparing our organization to other organizations with a lot more money that are well more, a lot more established. I know that uh, the organization gets a lot of FIFA gives them money for, for qualifying for the World Cup. So there is, there is more money to play with here. But the, the, the big issue seems to be the deal that Canada Soccer signed with a separate organization called Canadian Soccer Business in 2018. And they signed a 10-year deal, um, which essentially guaranteed revenue for Canada Soccer. But it sounds like it's kind of handcuffed them to, to really take the organization to the next level. Uh, ah. so that seems to be the, the big part of it. And of course, in 2018, you know, Canada was not close to qualifying for the World Cup. They were ranked as low as 95th in the world back then. So it was a, 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 a you know, they were in a different spot at, at that time. But it does seem to be, you know, uh, not a great deal now with the, with the right. team with all this talent that's going to the World Cup. Yeah, right. This may be a situation where they, they got locked into a long-term contract before the team took off in popularity and the success on the field and the qualification for the World Cup, and now suddenly the Canadian men's soccer team is probably worth a lot more as a going concern or as a fan attraction, but I guess they can't. maybe they can't get out of this deal that they've signed, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, there, I, and I should say there is a bit of uh, positive news that just broke in the last 15 minutes. Uh, Rick Westhead, who, who broke the story yesterday, uh, he's reporting today that uh, Canada Soccer is going to have a press release today saying that they've made uh, some progress in contract negotiations. So okay. that's a bit of positive news. So maybe they, they, they do have a match coming up against uh, Curacao on uh, on Thursday. So you know, hopefully that's uh, that that gives a you know a bit of good news, and, and hopefully we'll see them on the pitch uh, for that match. Okay, Rob. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks.